So we're going to open up God's Word this morning and we're going to listen. We are in this season of the year. We, we know the names. We know it's Christmas, but technically this is Advent. Advent is the season before Christmas, but they're profoundly connected with each other. And the story that we're going to look at just a little bit this morning is not a story that most of us would normally associate with the Christmas season at all, partly because it takes place so many years after Christmas occurred. Jesus is not an infant or a baby when this story comes up. He's not a toddler. He's not even a 12-year-old like we have one story about what happens in his life. But he's a full-fledged adult. And in fact, we're not going to almost quite meet Jesus in the story. It's going to take us right up to the precipice of that moment when Jesus steps onto the scene. It's found in Mark chapter 1, and although we're going to refer in a moment to an Old Testament passage, I'm going to invite you to open your Bible right now to Mark chapter 1. These words are also going to be thrown up on our screen, and uh, we're just going to prepare to read the first eight verses of the Gospel of Mark. But before I do that, just a couple thoughts with you, all right? I don't know if you know the name of William Barclay. He was a pastor and a professor now a good number of years ago, a Scotsman. He wrote a lot of things, but he's best known for a whole series of relatively small, they almost look like paperback books, but I have them in hardcover. These old books that were written on most of the, all the books of the, of the New Testament. And they were not written, like I said, they weren't really written for pastors or professors, but just for people to help them understand the New Testament as they was, as they were reading. So, um, Mark chapter one, verses one through eight. You read, you read that and you get to read what Barclay thought about it. And this is how he introduces the very beginning of Mark's gospel. He writes this. Mark starts the story of Jesus a long way back. The story of Jesus did not begin with his own birth upon earth, and it did not even begin with the emergence of John the baptizer in the wilderness. It began with the dreams of the prophets long ago. That is to say, it began long, long ago in the mind of God. I want you to think about that for a moment, that Christmas and the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus is not really quite the beginning. And the story we're going to read, which takes place when Jesus is about 30 years old, is definitely not quite the beginning. But when Mark tells the story for a moment, it almost seems like it is. Instead, I want you to think about the beginning of the story of the good news of Jesus. All right, so pay attention to these opening words in Mark's gospel for a minute. We're just going to read the first eight verses. It reads like this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance For the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I want you to just look at these words for a minute, especially right at the beginning. I told you on January 7, we're going to start exploring the beginning of the Bible. And the book we're going to read uh, for, for those first half chapters is just simply titled Beginnings. And that's sort of how 
Mark starts his gospel. When the whole Bible starts, you know Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that became the title of the book, Genesis. It's, it's a word about beginnings. And when Mark tells the story of Jesus, he starts at an unusual spot, at least as we would read it and think about it, but he uses that same word. Look at that first verse. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark wants to take us back to the roots. He wants us to understand what's going on by taking us to moment one. But you know what's so weird? He doesn't tell us the Christmas story at all. Matthew tells us about Joseph and Mary and a word of promise and a word of scandal and a lot of uncertainty. Luke tells us the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and a baby named John and talks about Mary and a promise made to her and the man she was about to marry named Joseph, and the very birth of Jesus is told about in Luke's gospel. We'll pay attention to that in a couple of weeks. But when Mark tells the story, it seems like he starts right when Jesus is 30, right when he steps onto the public scene, right when his relative, John, steps onto the public scene and starts doing something. And there's a truth in that, but I want you to see something in this word. Look again. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So I think what Mark is telling us there is that the beginning of Jesus isn't when he was born, and it isn't when he went public, and it isn't even simply at the very moment when John started preaching, doing what God had intended him to do. But the beginning of Jesus comes long before that. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus or John were walking the earth, there were promises from God that were given to certain people, getting them ready for something that was going to happen and getting them ready for a person who was going to be coming. Now, if you're using your Bible, I want you to hold your finger there and turn to the left, really not all that far, into the Old Testament to the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. On the other hand, you can just look up at the screen. Slackers. No, just kidding. All right. All right. I'm just in a mood this morning. Sorry. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is a common scripture to read at the time of telling the story of Christmas because it tells about Bethlehem. So look at these words. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. When the wise men went to Jerusalem and were trying to find the, the one who was going to be born to be king of the Jews, they came to Jerusalem. They asked Herod, help us to understand where is he supposed to be born? And they went to the scripture scholars and the teachers to figure that out. And they took them back to this verse to understand where the Messiah was to be born. Bethlehem. But look at the last two lines of that verse. Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The one who was coming, the one who's going to be born, the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, didn't just begin when a promise was given to Mary. He didn't just begin at the moment of conception. He didn't just begin when he was born. He didn't just begin when he stepped out into the scene. But there are roots that go way, way back. Some of you have traced your own family history and your lineage and you figured out where you come from. And, and although you probably can't name uh, your ancestors from, say, 1780, uh, some of you have found them. 
There are people who can trace uh, where they come from way, way back. The truth is, the Bible makes it absolutely clear, Matthew and Luke both, that for Jesus, it is possible to trace his story way back to a promise given to Micah, to promises given to Isaiah, to prophets who lived seven, eight hundred years before he was born. But there are other places as well. God speaking through a prophet to King David and saying, King David, you're going to have a son and your son is going to be on the throne of my people forever. That was a promise that was never fulfilled in a way that David could have envisioned at the moment it was given to him. But that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. It was a promise that was inherent in the word spoken to a guy by the name of Abram, an old man who had no kids and therefore not much of a future, nobody to take care of him when he got old, and no hope that his family line would continue when God said, Abram, I'm going to give you and your wife a baby boy, and I'm going to make from you a great people and a great nation. And although Abram didn't fully understand what that promise was all about, God said, through your son and through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. And in that promise was a promise from of old of where this one who came from Bethlehem was going to be. Even back at the very beginning, we don't know how Abram, 2,000 years before Jesus, we don't know how long it was before that, that the mother of humanity was given a word of promise in the midst of when things were going wrong in her own life, in her own world. That God was going to give her a child. And her child would be the defeat of the one who tripped her up and deceived her so badly. See, so the roots of Jesus go way back in time. Anticipation. Like you, I might be able to trace my family tree back pretty far. But honestly, it's hard for me to think how it's possible to conceive that people hundreds of years ago were anticipating in my family tree my birth. That'd really be stretching it. But people were anticipating the birth of this Jesus. What Mark tells about, in, in particular, is this story, um, back to Mark chapter 1, these words that Isaiah the prophet wrote. And actually, it wasn't just Isaiah. The, the lines at the beginning come from the book of Exodus and the last book of the, uh, of the of Old Testament, Malachi, and from the prophet Isaiah. Almost as if God was saying, listen, the anticipation for the one I'm sending into the world comes from... The Torah itself that we're going to explore in January it comes from the very beginning of my people. And it comes from the big prophets like Isaiah and the little prophets, the minor prophets like Malachi. There's no surprise here in a way. This is the one I've been promising. And with that promise, this beginning, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. When we were uh, listening to the candle um, reading before, we're acknowledging that in this month, we get ready for a lot of things, don't we? Any of you hosting anything? If you're hosting something, you're getting ready, aren't you? You're probably hosting some kind of Christmas celebration in your own home, family. You're getting ready for something. Even if you're going to a celebration somewhere else, you're going to bring something to contribute. You're getting ready. You are preparing. Preparation is involved. And preparation is a very significant part of really experiencing Christmas and really experiencing what it means to know the Jesus who was sent to this world and born for us. 
This isn't about the celebration of a holiday or a special day on the calendar. But God said, I'm going to send someone ahead of somebody else in particular. Look at these words again. The first two lines. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who's the I? The I is God. I, God, am going to send my messenger ahead of you. Who's the you? The one who's coming. The one who's being born. The one who's bearing the change and the good news and the cause of celebration in the world. The one I'm sending is going to get things ready for you. And who is that person? We're introduced to him in verse 4. We call him John. John the Baptist, or even more particularly John the Baptizer. He was the voice calling in the wilderness. He was the one saying to people, God's about to do something new. God's sending someone into this world who's been promised for a long time. You've been waiting for him. Some of you have been aware you've been waiting for him. Others have not been aware. You haven't put it together that you are waiting for someone new to change your life and to change your world and the world around you. But now is that time. And I want you ready. I want you prepared. I want you looking for him. I want you to be in a posture such that you are ready to meet him and to welcome him and to receive him into your own world and into your own life. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Here's a confusing thing about that last line. Prepare the way for the Lord. In the Old Testament, when it said that, do you know who the Lord was? Simply God, Yahweh. That's what that means. That someone was going to go ahead of God to get the world and people ready and the way ready for God himself to come to this world and for God himself to come close to human beings. That's what that messenger was sent to do. Because God was going to come. Now hold that thought for just a few moments. And I want you to think about John the Baptist, what he was like and who he was. It's kind of a strange figure. I think I told you one time about a guy I encountered in college. Uh, the one time in life when I really was fearful for my life. This really strange character. I honestly don't remember his name. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be rough on him or anything. I, but he was just different. It's like really different. He wore robes a lot. Um, and, and the time I think I mentioned was a time I got onto the seventh floor elevator at Traber 7, sophomore year. And I got on and he was there and he was in a robe. And we were going down. I don't think I'd ever really talked to him. I'm not sure I was t- conversed to him at that moment either. I just looked over and he was in the robe. But do you know what I saw? He wasn't just in a robe. He actually had a sword. It looked real to me. I had visions that that... That descent was going to be the end of my life. Nothing ever happened. But I always kept my distance. Those eyes looked just a little bit different. That robe threw me off. But that sword I will never forget. You ever encounter anybody at college walking around with a sword? I have no idea. Okay. Well, John the Baptist, to some people, might be that kind of strange figure. Wearing clothing just a little bit different. Out in the wilderness talking by himself, maybe just a little bit off. And do you know what? If you think in those terms, you are missing the boat. John was perfectly clear about who he was. John understood himself, and John understood his task. He wasn't a particularly dangerous person. In fact, this is who he was. He was a voice. He was a voice speaking. 
He had a voice that had something to say. He had a voice that was to deliver a message that was so important for people to listen to. And do you know what? Amazingly, even though he stepped away from Jerusalem and away from the crowded, populated places, stepped way out into the wilderness, and he started talking, word spread, and before long, people were coming, and they were coming close, and he had something he wanted to communicate with them. Look at verses 4 and following. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. It's a really unique happening. Back when, when God's people were an, an ethnic family, uh, there were others from outside that ethnic family who were interested. They were curious about the God of Israel. They were curious about the way this people lived and, and what they were committed to and, and, and the lives they had. And so they drew close. And they listened, and they read the words, or they listened to the words. And some of them said, I want to sign up. I want to be a part of Israel. I want to know the God who's called Yahweh. If they were really going to go all in, there were a couple things they had to do, including, if they were men, they needed to be circumcised. The sign of the covenant. And then there were, for many of them, a practice of washings or baptisms. And so people who were Gentiles, were not a part of God's people entering in, washed themselves as a sign. And that was the key. They washed themselves as a sign of being cleansed by God to be ready to be a part of his people. But when John showed up on the scene out in the Jordan River and people were coming to him, do you know what? Here's the thing. There's the water. The scene was a little bit different. Esperanza today is going to have a baptism service and a whole bunch of people are going to be baptized this afternoon here. And they're going to use this pool. There's some similarities to what's going to happen here this afternoon to what John did way back when. But there's also some significant dissimilarities. Number one, this is a pool. That water is nicely warmed. It's prepared. It's clean. It's perfect, okay? But someday, on that particular day back when, in the Jordan River, that was a river. It was flowing water. And even though Boaz Johnson, some of you here at camp, I just saw a picture from him. I think he's over in Israel right now, and it showed a picture of him swimming in the Jordan River. And I got to tell you, you ever heard of the muddy, uh, the, the muddy Mississippi? Man, that looked like the muddy Jordan. Well, how would anybody get clean in there? I don't know. But that was where John stepped into. And this is who was coming to him. There may well have been Gentiles coming to him, but overwhelmingly, they were Jews who were coming to him. Nobody had ever baptized Jews before because Jews were in. They were okay. They knew everything was fine between them and God. Big deal. No worry. But John said, the word I'm given and the message I'm sharing and the one who's coming, this is for everybody and getting ready is for everybody, not just for some. And the need for what's about to happen is for everybody and not just for some. Um, it is so possible for all of us to think about how good we are or how okay we are more and more in our society. To think that, that we don't need a lot of help and that we don't need forgiveness and that we got it okay. Especially if we've got some kind of pedigree or we have something to show for ourselves or we come from a good family or maybe even come from a Christian family. But simply not the way it is. 
I think a lot of Americans think that. We, th- we think pretty well of ourselves, and we think we got it together. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump, when he was running for president, had an interesting conversation one time when someone asked him about God and forgiveness. And he said this. He said, you know, I've never asked God for forgiveness. And I, I want to read just a couple of things that he said in this particular interview. Uh, someone followed up on that and said, you sure you don't want to? And he said, no, I think, I'm, I think I'm okay. I have a great relationship with God. I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I, tr- I, I try to do nothing that's bad. And then later in the year, a, a Republican pollster, Frank Luntz, uh, asked him some questions. Um, and asked him what he thought about what he'd said before and, and whether he should get God involved in this process a little bit. And he said, no, I, I, I'm not sure I ever have asked God for forgiveness. I, I just go on and try to do a better job from there when I do something wrong. I, I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, I want you to think about something. I, I actually think the president is a very typical person. I even think he's a very American person. You know what we tend to think about our lives? We tend to listen for and look for things that are going to encourage us and motivate us. We like motivational speakers. People get us fired up. And we like steps and processes and things that we can do to make our lives better, to take charge of our existence. And a lot of us, uh, an awful lot of us think that If there's any gaps in our lives, somehow we're still okay. I think that's so normal in the world in which we live today. But you know what John said to the people who were coming to him in in the Jordan River? I don't want you to think about anybody else. I don't want you thinking this morning. In fact, let me say to you right now, I don't want you reflecting on Donald Trump's statement very much. I want you thinking about yourself. A lot of us in our world no longer think about our problems. We think about somebody else's problems. A survey was done a couple of years ago about the number of Americans who are experiencing psychotherapy today versus like a decade or two decades ago. Psychotherapy, a kind of serious counseling in which you go with your own problems and your own life to understand yourself and to try to figure it out and to make it right. It's not a religious thing, not a spiritual thing, not a Christian thing, but an interesting way of approaching life. But what counselors are finding is less and less people want to do that. Rather, they want this. They want help trying to figure out how to change somebody else. And that's a big difference. What are the biggest problems in America today? You know what I think every one of us would say? Not me. That person. Not my group, that group. Not my candidate, that candidate. Get what I'm saying? But you know what John said? The biggest challenge in the world is me. And in order for me to be ready for the one who's coming, I've got to see that. I've really got to see that. And so he invited people. He invited all people. He invited everyone to come 
and to get into the river and to confess their sins to God. And to get wet, not damp. You know the word baptize? However we practice it in different ways. It meant literally to dip, to immerse, to dunk, to soak. Almost as if to say, any of you ever taken a long international flight where you've gone overseas, overnight? Gone to Europe, or you've gone to Tokyo, uh, to China, on business or recreation or whatever? And you wake up in the morning, it's not quite there yet, but the sun is coming up. It might have been a short night because you're flying towards the sun. But nonetheless, all of a sudden the flight attendants are walking through. And do you know what they're passing out? They're passing out these warm handcloths that are wet. And you get them, along with a glass of water, a cup of water. You get them, and you just wipe your face. Wash your hands. Because you know what happens overnight in a plane? Especially if you've been sleeping. If you're drooling at all. Okay? Get what I'm saying? Or you're still tired and you're all the rest. You get that and you just wipe your face and, oh, it feels good. In a little while they, they come and take them away. For a lot of people, baptism may be something like that. A refreshment. But John said, no, it's deeper. In fact, it's so deep, I don't want you to think the water is the whole sum total of it. Because after me, somebody else is coming who's stronger than I am. I'm not worthy to speak his name. I'm not worthy to untie the sandal of his feet. He is going to baptize you in a way I never could. I baptize you with water. But he's going to immerse you, dip you, soak you, inundate you with the Holy Spirit. Almost as if Jesus was coming to totally change us. You know what a total makeover is? That's what John said we need. Does Hillary Clinton need it? Donald Trump need it? Sure. But for right now, we're not worrying about that. You need it and I need it. If you've never met Jesus, I've got to tell you, you need to meet him. But if you have, it's just possible you think a warm cloth is enough to do it right now. And we have so much more to experience along this way of following him. The way prepared by God himself that we can walk on and be close to him. As we come to Christmas, ring the bells. Light the candles, give the gifts, but do not lose sight of this radically important moment to meet God in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. We thank you that your cousin came ahead of you and got people prepared and got them ready by speaking of their own need for a radical change, a total makeover, a fresh start but not just something that they would try to do on their own. Lord, help us remember the wisdom of what our president said, that when we do something wrong, we should do all that we can to make it right. If we've wronged another person, let's make it right with that other person. But Lord, help us also know that we really can't ultimately make it right. And we sure just can't make it right on our own with you. We need the one who's greater than John. 
the one we're not worthy to have a task that's lower than a slave would have done back when. We're not worthy before him. But amazingly, he's the one who came not only to wash our feet, but to die in our place so that we could know you. Help us know the baby who became a servant and the baby who went to the cross and the baby who rose and is coming again for us. Change our lives now. In his name we pray, amen.